Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, Rajma says you cannot really write halakha completely. So, um... I want to go with, with that in mind of having like how we really have to decide for ourselves on a, on the regu- on a regular basis to two things. One, the methodology of halakha, and the other are concepts that have, have been floated a lot in the, at least the last decade. I hear it a lot. A concept called meta-halakha. Have you heard the term meta-halakha? Like, and people use it as a, as a short, like, this is something beyond halakha. This is, the, those are like, like, you know, metaphysics, right? It, it's something that is beyond the regular scope of halakha. And I said, there's no such thing, meta halacha, because everything is halacha. When you are about to make a decision, every part of the equation is part of halacha. Emotions, uh, perception, what will people say, how will people feel now, later, other people, it's all part of it. And it is written in the Gemara, or in the Mishnah, actually. The Mishnah says the following. When you choose people to be... Uh, Judges in the Sanhedrin, there are some people who are disqualified. One of them, Zaken Umishen Lobanim. Someone never had children, or is now very old and his children are already uh, grown ups, cannot be a judge. Why? Because he's lacking on Midata Rahmanut. He's lacking on, the, on this character trait of mercy and compassion. It's an amazing concept. Hachamim tell you here you have a man who studied, who was first probably. Nismach, uh, then he became a Dayan, then he moved, according to the way Rambam says, from one road to another until he became a judge in the Supreme Court that could issue capital punishment. And then we say, we're sorry, you're too old. You, you, don't, you don't really feel the pain of people. The Halakha, the Mishnah says that you have to feel the pain of people. You have to feel the problem in order to be a Poset. This is for the rabbi. And unfortunately, a lot of the, of the rabbis, other Poskim, don't see that. Because they have, no, the book, the, this is, I just saw the Shuvah, which I'm going probably to quote tomorrow in, in, in the email, and it's about uh, uh, a woman who uh, is not allowed to get pregnant, and they, they asked if you could use one of contraceptives, and the rabbi says, what's the problem? It's not Bikuah Nefesh, she could get divorced. And that's the solution. She wants to be, she wants to be married, she wants to be with her husband. But no, that's the solution. What about her emotions? What about the way it's going to affect the kids? This is not factored in. So it's like methodology. I'm going to go back to this issue. Methodology of halakha. So, in the modern Orthodox world, which follows in, the, in, in uh, uh, not modern, it's like Orthodox and modern Orthodox, follows in great, to, to a great extent the, the teachings of the Ashkenazi school of thought, um, starting from medieval time. That what originally they, st- they learned from the, Sephard- the Sephardic Ayun uh, and then adopted it and we call it a brisk or litvak or whatever. There are two, there are two major, uh, I would say, fields of knowledge that are ignored in in that um, in that world, or let's call let's say one book and one field of science. The field of science that is ignored in in halakha today is history. History doesn't count. 
You know, everything was always as it is today. If I will pull a picture from the 50s, for example, that shows a woman without a hair covering, we will have to come up with an excuse to explain the picture, but not to say that maybe in the 50s, women did not cover their hair. Right? So, and, and this is just one example. There are a million examples of when you look at halakha and you look at history and you put them together, you realize that you have to understand halakha differently. Rabbi Yosef Meshach, for example, in his, one of his reviews of a book, it was written, uh, it was the Shalot Shavuot Rabbi Yitzhak ben Walid. Rabbi Yosef Meshach praised the book. He says, it's an amazing book. He says, but one thing is missing. One thing I don't find in the introduction to the book, the grandchildren of the author spoke about their grandfather then he says, it's beautiful, but you know what's missing? I don't know where he lived and when. If I don't know where and when he lived, I cannot understand his halakha. Because it's particular and specific to the place and time. It's an amazing statement. We don't see it today. People say, uh, I go back to the example of Kisui Rosh, right? Hair covering for women. If you look at what Rabbi Meshach says, Rabbi Meshach says, I look around me and I see that most women don't cover their hair. But I know that they're observant, righteous women. So I cannot label them all as non-observant. So I probably I have to look at it in a different way. And I said, what is the source of this minag? And he goes on into that, right? So I write that, I explain that. And then someone writes and says, but Rambam says that a woman who goes out without her covered is Overet Aldat Moshe. She is breaking a biblical law. And we follow everything, everything that we do is according to Rambam. What is my answer to that? What is my answer to that? This is part of it, the only part, is look at the history. Look at the context. And also ask yourself, do you really follow Maimonides to the letter? Every single word? Because Maimonides also says, Gnayu Laisha, it's inappropriate for a woman to, to travel in the streets. Really, it's not. It's hype. You shouldn't do that. Once a month, twice a month, you know, Saudi Arabia, right? But it's a different culture. And not only that, it's like if we really say that I, I want to follow my Maoris to the letter, then follow everything he says. Don't pick and choose. But unfortunately, the rabbis are entitled to it. You know, if you really go and investigate what the rabbis said and how they are posek halakha, you realize, wait a second, you pick and choose. You pick this halakha from Rambam, and this halakha from Shuhana Aruch, and this halakha from Hacham Abadiyah. An example of picking and choosing from Hacham Abadiyah, there are a lot of things that you hear from people saying, oh, we do that because this is what Hacham Abadiyah said. Yalkut Yosef, Yabia Omer, Yahavedat, there are so many books out there. Right? It's true, Hacham Abadiyah says that. Hacham Abadiyah also says, that a woman who wears a wig should be divorced. How many Tamidi Hachami that we know that said we have to follow Hacham Abadiyah Yosef, everything he says, but their, their wives wear wigs, right? So do they follow what Hacham Abadiyah says? No. Are they entitled to pick and choose? Yes. But they're not entitled to tell us, all of us, not to pick and choose. So this is one, one concept I want to say in the methodology of Allah that we really have to educate ourselves in order to, to come to that point of being able to be posek. So it's a problem. It's a big problem because we don't have the time. Right? We will say we don't have time. So one, one remedy for that, really, I think, and I'm talking to the educators here, we have to tweak a little bit 
the curriculum in the schools, in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Jewish day schools, of how we teach halakha and how we teach our, our sources. Because in a typical school, you'll have uh, probably uh, three or four classes that are separate. That's Mishnah, Talmud, Dinim, and Holidays. So the Hagim, the special times, you will teach the halakha of the Hagim. Then you have Dinim, a section that you study only halakha. You study Mishnah, maybe Brachot, maybe Yevamot, and then you study Talmud, a different section. They're not related. So there's this, there is this uh, disconnect between the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Halakha. What we're missing is the chronological order, starting historically. What does the Tanakh say? What does the Mishnah say? What does the Talmud say? What does Rambam say? What does Halakha say? Yeah, it's long, it's tedious to do it for each and every Halakha. So if we have time for that, good. If not, the other, the other tool that we should apply when we study halakha is study responsa, she'elot u'tshuvot. She'elot u'tshuvot, and not only one book. If you ask people today, especially in the Sephardic world, what book of she'elot u'tshuvot do you know? Yabi'a Omer. It's a great book. Yabi'a Omer is an amazing book. It's a very important book. But there are other books. And there's Chachamad Yosef. There's Yaskil Avdi by Yabi'a Hadaya. Now, what is, the, what is the advantage of looking at the responsa? Responsa is real, real life cases. You read the responsa, you read the Shalotu Shuvot, and you see how the Posek thinks, how he approaches the problem. You see a Shalan Rafi Alim, the Benish High. He was asked about. Uh, a case of adultery, does he have to, uh, the adulterer, the teshuvah, he came to ask for, uh, for uh, uh, a method of repentance, now he wants to know, does he have to uh, uh, alert the husband or not, it was years after the deed. So before the bench even answered the question, he says, I have to make sure that the reputation of the family is not damaged, because already they have married children, how is it going to affect the family? I have to find ways to, uh, to say that he doesn't have to reveal the information. So he already considered what I said before, the meta halakha is already factored in. So that is one aspect. The other aspect, Tanakh. We don't study Tanakh as much as we should. And when I say Tanakh is not Tanakh through Midrash Agada, through commentators, we need the direct connection to Tanakh to first know the full total database of Tanakh, to, be, to, be, to make it part of our language. So after you do the first time, yeah, okay, you could maybe skip the technical part, you know, the building of the Mishkan and the, and the censuses and all that. But there's a lot of the wisdom literature. How, how often do we read Mishlei, Iyov, Tehilim, Be'iyun, right? When we look at Kohelet, Shira Shirim, as a, as a book of Chokmah. So I want to go like briefly the Hamisha Hamisha Torah and look at what, what they teach us in sense of the of the grand uh, the grand picture the 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 view of what we have to look at as poske alacha each and every one of us. So Sefer Bereshit, the first question that Rashi says on the Humash that everybody says. Right, the Torah should have started in chapter 12 in Shemot. Not in Bereshit, we don't need that. Then he answers the question, it's a beautiful answer, but the problem is that the question remains stuck in our mind. The Torah should not have started 
in Bereshit, meaning that because it's not halacha, we don't have to study it. So some people, because of that, went and searched for halachot in Bereshit. Oh, we, we do have, actually someone wrote an article in Tradition, where he listed all the halachot in Sefer Bereshit, Bikur Cholim, etc. The answer is no. Those are the kind of halachot that are, maybe you should call it the fifth part of the Shuhan Aruch. You cannot write these halachot. You learn from observing. You look at the life of our forefathers and our foremothers. Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rahel, Elah, and you look at how they lived, and all the other characters in Bereshit, Yosef and his brothers, and we learn from that what happens when we do something right, when we do something wrong. When we don't try to, to justify everything they did, but look at it with a critical eye, then we learn that the halakha is much more than just saying, mutar, asur, tameh, taho. It's asking myself, Okay, my mother wants me to go and deceive my father and get the beracha, right? Right or wrong? I don't know what to do. Maybe, okay, that's a long story. I don't want to get into that, right? But if you keep on reading the, the, the rest of seven Bereshit, you realize that Yaakov had to pay for that. So in, in, in retrospect, you realize what are the consequences. Same with halacha. Someone's going to ask you a question. Should I write by on Shabbat? Should I uh, use electricity of Yotov? Or simple, you know, more simple halakha. We don't want to get into the, you know, to, to the big things. Uh, like, uh, do, do I have to say, do I have to wash for a bagel, etc.? Questions like that. Ask yourself the question, okay, where is it going to lead? What's going to happen next? This is, this is, uh, this is for Bereshit. Shemot. I, look at the, I like to look at Shemot of the Ten Commandments. Because everybody divides the Ten Commandments into two units. Ben Adam Lamakom, Ben Adam Lachavero. Right? So what we do, when, when we divide them like that, we actually create a, uh, a dichotomy, right? It has to be like, like separate things, two separate units. But there's a different way to look at it. There's a way to look at this whole thing as a journey, as, as a process that leads from This is, let me, God says, let me tell you what I'm giving you as a gift. I am God. So you have the gift of being able to connect to the divine. You have a God. You have faith. You have spirituality. Don't, once you, you engage in paganism, you lose the respect for Tzedem Elohim. Do not use the gift of religiosity. Do not waste it. Do not corrupt religion like we see today. Then, Yom HaShabbat. Shabbat is a gift. Appreciate it. The family is a gift. Appreciate it. So Torah goes with all the gifts that we receive from God. Right? And then it says, Do not take that which belongs to others. Their life, their, their relationships, their possessions, or their right to fair trial. And you know what the result will be? The end result of the whole thing, then you'll be able to achieve that level of not coveting that. It's not a commandment. It's the Torah never says commandment. It's the Torah. There are ten causes, ten issues. We get there. Vaikra, each homage gives us like this kind of, a, of, of, a, of an amazing message that because we're so immersed in halacha, you know how hachamim say, I'm sure you know this, this phrase, Miyom Shaharab Beta Mikdash, Enu la Kadush Baruch Hu Ba'olamo, El Arba Amot Shalacha. From the time that the demo was destroyed, God only has the four cubits of halacha. So people think this is a, this is a praise, a beautiful thing. I don't know, maybe it was, maybe it was criticism. Maybe the rabbi says, you know what you did? You confined God in before Amot of Halakha. 
You're measuring God with the kazaid and the tefah and the amah, right? But there's no spirit, there's no emotion, there's no understanding of, of, of the other person who's standing in front of you, which is the center of Aikra, ve'avta Love yourself first, know how to live, because if as you say, love the others, you love yourself. If I hate myself, we are in trouble. I'm going to hate others as well. Right? This is, this is the message of the Torah there. Love yourself, then use it to help others. This is the core message of the Torah. And, okay, I'm not going to go, we have time for that, from and then I go for questions, because uh, there's a lot to say about that. But in Bemidbar I see this message. Hachamim said the following, um, you know in chapter 11 in Bemidbar, there's uh, the two nunim, the inverted nunim, and in between we have two psukim. We say when when the Torah comes out. And but the second pasuk is very hard to understand. I recently got a, a book, an old book that I got from my friend Sai Mizrahi. So I had time to open the book. It's by Naftali Torchiner or Torchinai, commented on the Torah, and he writes about this pasuk. I was very excited to see what he had to say about this pasuk. He changed each and every word of the pasuk. He says, no, this should be read this way, it should be read that way. Like, I didn't recognize the original Pasuk. It's like, you know, this the game called Jumbles. Like, uh, this is, the Pasuk is so complicated. But I think the, 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 the meaning of the Pasuk is actually quite simple. Moshe speaks about leadership. And he speaks about, at, at, in chapter 11 in, in, in Bamidvah, Kishmo Kenu, it's chapter 11, it's bankruptcy. Am Israel is falling to pieces because there's a crisis of trust. They don't trust the, the leadership, they don't trust Hashem, they don't trust Moshe. Moshe says, in order for us to work, we need shuvah, Adonai, rivevot, alfei Israel. We have to realize that we are the myriads of thousands of Israel. We have thousands and tens of thousands of people, and each and every one of us has different desires and aspirations and needs and talents, and the leaders, the halacha, have to be able to accommodate all of them. Yes, of course, we have to have in mind the, the public realm, the, 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 the private realm, but for example, when it comes to the question of running the train in Israel on Shabbat, right, and you have to do maintenance, of course you have to do whatever you can to make it work, not whatever you can to make it not work. Find a solution. Find a solution, and this is really, I think, also the core of the answer in when we come to halakha, how do we make halakha relevant? To make halakha relevant in today's time and age, what the rabbis have to do is to recognize the problems. They have to talk to people and to listen to what's happening and to say there is a problem. And from the Barim Al-Meshen, what we just read, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdov, really the pursuit of justice and how we treat other people. All these things are, you know, throughout the Humash, we keep coming back to it. The Torah is not for God. The Torah is for us to make our, ourselves better, to heighten our spiritual awareness, and to help others. So I'll give you one last example of how the rabbis recognize or not recognize a problem. And that's with the story of Aguna. Aguna is one of the, the hot, really, really difficult uh, issues that we have today, right? And the rabbi says there's no remedy for that. We're working, we're working. For the last 200 years, we're working. We didn't come to the solution yet. You know why they're working? Because we don't recognize the problem. Because when a woman, when a woman's husband is missing, Right? Then we find ways. We find one, and, and the, the question was raised in Halakha. Rabbi Shmuel Levi Wasner speaks about that. He says, 
How can we rely for Aguna to, to let her marry someone else? We rely on one witness or on a woman or on circumstantial evidence. We don't rely on any, anywhere else. Why here? He says, because we have a safety net. What is our safety net? Afqa'at Kiddushin. He says, if the, really, at the end of the day, we know that even if the witness is not kosher or something is, you know, there's a problem with the, with the circumstantial evidence, we technically undid her, her marriage. She was never married to that man. We're good. We're covered. Really? You have that solution? Why don't you use it in a case where the husband refuses to give, refuses to give a get to his wife and she's here 15 years, she's suffering? Because I don't see the problem. The husband is here. Okay, we'll wait. We'll wait. I can wait. You can, she cannot wait. She's suffering. So, to, to sum it up, what I said is, we have to study Tanakh. But really, seriously. We have to study Shiloh to Shuvot, if possible. We have to realize that we have the responsibility. Sometimes, we cannot turn to anyone to ask a question. We have to know what to do. This is Va'amidu Tanamidim al We have to be strong on our feet to be able to be posek halacha. And as long as we don't kill someone else, it'll be okay. And we have to remember that everything is part of halacha. Emotions, perceptions, how it's going to affect other people, what is going to happen 10 years from now, 50 years from now. If I'm strict with my kid now, is it going to be OTD of the derech in, in, in 20 years? So that's a problem. So all these things should be factored in, calculated. That would be maybe the first step towards making halacha uh, relevant for the 21st century. Thank you, and now open for questions. Questions? Yeah. yeah. So, based on this whole talk, it basically feels like we could rationalize any crossing of the mitzvah, transgression. We could rationalize adultery. We could rationalize murder. We could rationalize almost basically everything by using the context of the time, or the, or the, or the, what we're looking at at that particular moment. You know, say, a man has to provide for his family, he can work on Shabbat. So, you know, it's very possible. You're, you're right, 100%. Do we, have, do, we, do we have lines that we don't cross? Yeah, I agree 100%. Not only we could do that, it has been done. It has been done by the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel. The two examples that you give, adultery and murder, has been authorized by some ultra-Orthodox rabbis in Israel. One actually is sued, but it's a scandal. But for years, the like leader of a, of, a, of a very, very strict sect in Bnei Brak was telling women to sleep with him. And then he said, since they did it with the consent of their husbands, it's not adultery. He sort of like, he rationalized that. Yeah, it is dangerous, but it's dangerous on both sides. Not only, you know, it's when people, okay, now what? Well, how about murder? Do, you, do we know of any rabbis who sanction murder? Yes. Rabbis who oppose organ donation. Right? There are ways to have organ donation in a halachic manner. And people who oppose it, there were cases where organs were available and rabbis delayed the decision until some organs were not available anymore or all of them were not available. So yeah, it is, a, it is very dangerous, but it goes both ways. That is what I always say. Like the slippery slope, that this fear of where are you going to take halakha? Goes both ways. We can never say, oh, you have, you know, if I'm going to be strict on that, I'm going to save lives. You have to, we have to look at the whole picture. So 100%, you have to be careful. You, we could rationalize everything. And we can only rely, I believe, on our, uh, really our own uh, moral compass to kick in at a certain point or 
maybe the combined uh, conscious of the of the community to help us with that. But we have to be alert. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I want to bring you back to the other neighborhood that you were once in, and that's L.A. Okay. You told us a story about this person who had his father in the hospital, whatever it is, and he had to go in front of him. I want to understand the origins of the guilt that he had mm -hmm. that caused him to go to Khatam, a rabbi, for, for sec to go to, uh, to go to the rabbi. I want to understand, in the, our educational system, we have this fear, this mm -hmm. guilt that's instilled in all the kids. I want to understand the origins of that. Yeah. So that's a good point. I think that's part of the reason why a lot of people are disenfranchised today with Judaism. Maybe not, not in this community. Here, Rosh Hashem, everybody's very, uh, you know, up to date. Everybody's very happy. No one has questions. I'm talking about the other people. Uh, <laughs> you know, like in the Vidui, Hashem, no, but not, not, never me. Uh, and and that is that we've got we've got so used to work from within a factor of fear. Why do you why do you need to be Jewish? Because otherwise, uh, you know, because they're trying to kill us for being Jewish. We have the enemies. We have to show them, right? This is, this is one element. So we always we always measure ourselves vis-a-vis -vis the other, and we have to you know to show them and all that. Then uh, the other element that we use always is guilt. That uh, part of it was because you know so many people died for religion. So how how can you not appreciate their sacrifice? Um, and and the other thing is because really it works so well. Guilt guilt works so uh, perfectly. I mean, unless you have someone in your life that would uh, be able to alleviate the guilt from you. That's one of the things that I get a lot from people that uh, when we discuss a certain question of halacha and. They say, okay, you know what, now I don't feel guilty about that. It's not that they're going to go and do it again and again and again. It's the opposite. Now they feel happier about being Jewish. They feel happier about being observant. But, but rabbis and educators and parents learn very, very fast. Or, you know, they get the, the information from, you know, uh, previous generation that guilt works. So, so they instill it in us. And, and sometimes some, some you cannot uh, shake it away. And I think this is where we have to where we have to really invest our efforts and ask this question of how can you look at Judaism and say, this is what Judaism gives me? What is the positive element that Judaism gives me? Not what is the negative? If I don't do it, I'll be punished. Or if I don't do it, I'll feel guilty. Or, you know, and put it in terms that we're more, more uh, familiar with. Let's say that you have to market Judaism, Right? How do you market Judaism to other people? I asked this question once, and you know what people told me? I was in, in a high school in L.A. I said, I want you to market Judaism to a friend of you who is either not religious or not Jewish, or over there was not Jewish, whatever. Uh, not observant, right? And they said, they all said, we suffer so much, why should we sell it to someone else? <laughs> so so uh, uh, we have to really, we have to clean our act in this, in this thing and teach our kids not, okay, if you don't do this, you're going to be guilty. But if you do this, you're going to be happy. And the only way that we could show them that is if we're happy. Like if we sit on Shabbat at home and we're sullen and we're oh my God, when is Shabbat over? You know, it's like, right? It's like the Pasuk in Ishaya. We just wait for Shabbat to be over so we can go back to our practices. No, but if the kiss is like, you, you can't wait for Shabbat to come and you enjoy Shabbat so much, they will enjoy Shabbat as well. That's, that's what I think. Yes? And... 
of like the two minutes that I have to answer you, right? Uh, I could, really, I could, I could have told you like off the cuff that just say what you feel that you, want, you need to say, but then we would say, no, how can you say it? It's like, but then I could quote Rabbi Avraham Ishaqa Kohen Kuk, the first chief I mean, we all know who Rav Kuk was, who on, on the high holidays only said Shema and Amida. His prayer on, on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, it took him the whole day, but it says Shema and Amida. He meditated, right? But I'll tell you something about the Vidui. You're 100% right. Saying Vidui five times on Kippur is really, it's an overkill. Because you say, you know, at a certain point, either you say Ashamnu and you say, it's not me, it's him, right? It's them, it's all the other people, it's all the other people that, I mean, I'm, I'm good, right? Or, or you just say, oh, it's a joke. I, I mean, maybe I did something wrong, but I didn't, I didn't steal, I didn't kill, I didn't commit adultery. So this doesn't relate to me. It's just another formula that I have to recite, right? So what I used to do in, in, in uh, you know, Sundays in the shul, I would stop and say, okay, the, anyone who wants to read the whole vidui, go ahead and read it. But we are going to talk for five minutes about Ashamnu or about Bagadnu. Bagadnu is a good, to speak about that. What is Bagadnu? We have betrayed, betrayed someone's trust. Think about that. Take one concept and think about it. And if you think about it the whole day or you think about how, how can I improve my life? What is something that I want to that I want to change, that is really the message of Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. Choose one, 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 uh, one Tehillim. Read Yeshayahu. I would say read, you know, the, the, the Musa of Yeshayahu and, and the Nevi'im. And if you relate, read Iyov. Why not? Read something. I used to read Mesilat Sharim when I was in Yeshiva and, 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 and it inspired me more. But definitely you're allowed, I think you're allowed, in order for you to have the tefillah that you need, to choose your tefillah. Now, Mahalokat will be between Rambam and Rambam. Rambam says that Tefillah is Midoraita. Ramban says Tefillah is Midorabanan. But even Rambam says that, it's that the, the, the Ikar is one time a day. So I'm not telling you to go back to Rambam, but at least one of the Tefillot, you can be a little more flexible. Uh, one, yeah, Rangi. You, you are articulating a theory or a philosophy of personal responsibility yes. and your own Pesach. Yeah. And you're saying that you need to develop an instinct in order to execute that. Yes. Can you, can you clarify or articulate a principle of when, when is a person supposed to be ready for that? And if you don't have an answer to that, is it because the, what you give up by not having the right instinct is gained by the freedom and the uh, responsibility? Okay, it's a good, it's a good question. So uh, first I think it's a, it's a concept that people can understand more today 
when you look at, at the model of, uh, believe it or not, the internet, right? When you have crowdsourcing and crowdfunding and, 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 and something called mind sharing and quant wisdom, that there is something that you learn. This is really what the minhag used to be all about. When we say that minhag, you follow the minhag, minhag Israel dinu, because people understood intuitively, this is what we have to do. Unfortunately, the last hundred years, the, the system has changed, and the rabbi said, no, it's only minhag if the rabbi approves of it. So how is the minhag? It's the rabbi's minhag, right? This is, this is what we did. That's number one. Now, the other thing is, uh, when I say you develop the instinct for it, you could, you could definitely have your rabbi or rabbis and people that you turn to to get advice. But at a certain point, you want to be able to say, oh, I already know what I should do. And again, I'm going to use an, 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 uh, an analogy from, uh, from modern technology. Artificial, artificial intelligence, right? I've been working for, for years, trying to, to build, to create artificial intelligence, right? And up until recently, the idea was, how do you create artificial intelligence? You, it, it goes through coding. You write, you write the, the programming, you write the codes for the computer to, to handle a, a, a thousand, a million uh, different situations, right? And you hope that at some point, the, the, the computer will be able to make all the necessary uh, connections, like we, we have like billions of, of uh, uh, neural connections in, in our brain, to, to think like a human. Now, the uh, attitude has changed. Now that we have what we call like deep learning, uh, deep learning networks, where you don't tell, you don't write code for the computer, but rather you feed, you feed um, data of human behavior. This was one, I mean, one amazing example that just uh, took place. Um, a Go player, Go is a much more uh, sophisticated game than chess. Chess, you have 30 possible moves. In Go, it's 200. So, so far, computers were not able to, to feed humans. But then they went with this deep learning uh, network. They also use it for autonomous cars and for other devices. They use, uh, uh, who knows, soon, you know, we want to have an autonomous rabbi. It's like, okay, uh, and then uh, it'd be easier to make conferences like that. But, um, uh, but the, uh, the computer was finally was able to defeat the Go player. But the most amazing thing, it, was, but it, it, uh, it made a move that was never made before. It was, it was a novelty, right? They fed, they fed the computer something like 30 million moves, and now it does something that never, no one ever did before. That was like original thinking. It's, it's an amazing moment. Uh, some people actually were so excited by that that they have it tattooed to their, you know, like move 38. This is the, the move that, like the, the, the dawn of artificial intelligence. But then the more amazing thing happened that the, the player in the next round it was defeated in this round, but this champion in the next round made a move that he never, no one ever did before, and he said that the machine taught him how to think. He would, something new was open to him. And I think this is when we talk about, about halakha. Halakha should be really not a rigid, written, etched-in-stone book, but rather something which is alive and palpable and changing according to circumstances. Of course, like you asked before, not everything changes. There are certain constants that never change. But at a certain point, when, when, you, when, you, when we live our life, and we have to live our life with halakha, not to be enclosed and shrined in the four walls of the kolel, and just you know, read through the books, because if you're not out there, you don't know what halakha is, you don't know what interaction with people is. Once you go through that, and you apply on a regular basis, and maybe yes, in the beginning you ask someone, even before or after, if you didn't have a chance to ask before, you ask after. You consult someone that you trust. You think I did the right thing? And he, he or she would tell you, yeah, yes, no, and you go through it. And then at some point you say, okay, I think I know what I should do. I think that's, that's, that's the direction. Yes, uh,